0: Okay, so last week we talked about, we opened up the discussion about Torah. Of course, you know, if you were to distill Judaism into one word, there's a good argument to be made for the word Torah to fill that void or to you know, fill that responsibility. Because Torah, that's, that's our mission, that's our life, that's, that's our focus, that's our heritage. That's what distinguishes us from others, and we know the Torah, as we documented last week, the Torah study has been the national obsession of the Jewish people for time immemorial, right? Um, we look at history, and the one constant, well, the two constants, are anti Semitism and obsession with Torah. Uh, at any particular point in history, any place in time, where you examine the interests, the pastimes, the ambitions, uh, you know, of of the populace, it was about Torah. That's what it was. The most respected scholar, you know, had the leadership. He was the rabbi. He was the person who you would go to for advice. The kids would go, you'd send them to, 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 to study Torah. Like we mentioned, Maimonides writes that the most important thing that you have to do when looking into a place to live is what kind of Jewish education will that place afford for my children? And go, he's, he speaks about it in such terms by saying that if you have a Jewish community that doesn't have a Jewish school, you have to burn down the city, which obviously, you know, is very severe.
1: A little bit. Just a <laughs> Yeah. You know,
0: but, you know, to burn down the entire city, means, it means that a Jewish city cannot subsist, cannot sustain, does not have any right, any merit to exist if it is bereft of Torah study. And the question that we want to examine before all is Why? You know, what about Torah study? Makes it so important, so central, so crucial to Jewish life that we find in our morning prayers we say the Talmud Torah and Kulam. Talmud Torah is supersedes all, it's equivalent to all the mitzvahs. If you were to say what is one mitzvah that represents all mitzvahs, that is equal to all the other mitzvahs combined, we say in the Mishnah and Peya, which we read every morning, it's Torah study. You take all the wonderful mitzvahs of Honoring your parents and visiting the sick and uh, uh, supporting the poor and uh, and comforting the mourners and accompanying, uh, uh, helping uh, the young poor brides get married. All these wonderful mitzvahs. And what's one mitzvah that's all equal to all of them? Torah study.
1: Why? Mitzvahs, the Torah encompasses all those other mitzvahs.
0: Yeah. Okay, so we're going to break that down. So that's a very good answer. Torah include, includes all. That's one, that's one of the reasons why. I want to start from the simplest answer. Like, wh- Why do we study Torah? And the simplest answer, I think, is because it's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah. The Torah, one of the mitzvahs of the Torah, one of the mitzvahs of Judaism, one of the 613 is study Torah. As we know, with the, the, we read it in the Shema, teach it to your children. Right. Talk about it when you're up in the morning and at night, when you're traveling, Right. when you're going to sleep. Uh, in the evening, we know there's a mitzvah to, to have Torah study. Furthermore, we're told, uh, and this is actually the eighth verse in the book of Joshua, we're told that he Yoba to study Torah day and night. And what's actually interesting is that when you look at the actual mitzvah of Torah study, from the Torah's perspective, what does it say? Teach it to your children. Study in the morning and at night. So theoretically, we can fulfill our torah obligation of Torah study by studying once in the morning and once at night. By the way, we have the Shema that we say every morning and every night. The Shema are excerpts from the Torah. And by saying the Shema in the morning and saying the Shema at night, we have fulfilled the torah mitzvah of studying Torah.
1: Just by saying the Shema. That's right.
0: Because you it. study Torah in the morning and at night. And the Shema is part of the Torah. And you say it in the morning and say it at night. Now what's interesting is that when once you finish the Torah itself and you you open up the book of the prophets, you find the very very first paragraph, of the mitzvah of study Torah day and night. Obsession with Torah study. All day, all night study Torah. The question we have to ask is why was this Mitzvah that's so dominant in the Jewish way of life, in the Jewish Weltanschauung, to study Torah and to be obsessed with it, and it's kind of a healthy obsession to be obsessed with Torah study. Why was that not included in the Torah itself? Why do we wait to the book of Joshua to say study Torah? David? Yes, the Torah does say study Torah, but it says in the morning and at night. You know, have one touch point with Torah in the morning, one touch point with Torah at night, and you fulfill your responsibilities. Say the shema in the morning, say the shema at night, and you're good to go. That's well,
1: not studying the Torah.
0: Well, first of all, it's not studying the Torah. You know, that's yeah. Well, it is kind of studying, but it's not. I'm saying it's not studying all of Torah, but it's certainly not, not studying with the same, it's studying, it's the same intensity. Saying
1: the, the same prayer every same day. Honestly, it's
0: well, but it's words from the, the. It could be like that, but it's still words of Torah, right? Right, but
1: it's but the it's same thing study. you're saying over and over Yeah, it's not. It's study. not studying
0: and it's not obsession. It's it's not it's.
1: Anything different every I mean, every day. You're saying the same. And day. it's and how much
0: of the Torah are you ignoring yeah. if you just say the Shema? Most, of it. but yeah. the vast majority of it. Yeah. So it seems like the Torah itself is asking for the barest of minimums, right? the The barest minimum that is what the Torah is asking, and then you finish the Torah and you open up the next book, the book of Joshua, and bam, on the first page you're told, study Torah day and night. And there are sages in the Talmud point out that the Torah itself does not ask you to study it. It asks for the bare minimum, read it day and night. And then once you're done that, the other book, the very next book, the very first page, the very first paragraph, study Torah day and night. It's as if it's crude and crass, for the Torah itself to demand that you... It's that the Torah itself is saying, like, study me. And the Talmud goes a step further, and I think this is very interesting because it kind of sheds light on what the relationship that we have with Torah is really all about. There's a law, okay, and this is the laws of intimacy of Judaism. And uh, when they talk about kind of the relationship between a husband and wife, the, uh, uh, the matrimonial relationship, the intimacy... Um, one of the laws is is that uh, to use kind of subterfuge, not subterfuge but to use kind of to, you know to treat it as something holy and therefore to not be to not be crass about it. Um, in in society at large, it is unfortunately it's linked to the most base of desires, whereas in Judaism it's the most special kind of experience that a human could have because. You know this is holiness, and it's the, the exact opposites. And for so one of the laws that it says is that if 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 a husband or, or a wife is interested in intimacy, they shouldn't ask for it straight out. You know, they could use hints. You know, they could you know drop hints uh, to try to kind of set the tone or set the mood or you know etc. Kind of give off that vibe. But to just say I want X, Y, or Z, right? That's you know, that's unbefitting. That's one of the laws. The Talmud says that when the Torah does not explicitly demand that we study it intensely day and night, that's akin to a wife not asking explicitly for intimate relations. And there's a connection that the relationship that we have with the Torah is similar to the relationship that a husband has with a wife. It's so deep, it's so intimate, it's so special. And therefore, the Torah itself could not demand explicitly study me day and night. And there's uh, other examples of that. We have, for example, the, the Talmud goes off and lambasts someone who studies Torah occasionally. You know, it's no set schedule. It's occasionally. It says that's the that's example of someone going to visit a prostitute. You know? What's the difference between uh, a, a spouse and a prostitute? What's the difference? The difference is, is that one of them is steady, and one of them is, a, is occasional. We don't study Torah occasionally. We have a steady relationship with the Torah. And therefore, if someone studies Torah only occasionally then uh, then they are kind of mistreating the Torah. They're not treating it as a spouse would treat another spouse, right? They treat it like someone would treat when they, um, when they uh, consort uh, with a prostitute, which is a, very, is a very subtle thing going on over here. And it, it seems a little bit bizarre, right? You know, to us, we study Torah like it's a really nice part of our lives. But it's not so central. It's not like defining who we are. But it's very interesting. Just before we even like this opens up, I think a whole different perspective for us as to what Torah is really about. You know, we think of Torah as something that we study. To be intimate, to be have a deep and profound relation with Torah, to us, that's that's a little bit bizarre. That's a little bit more than we kind of are asking for. We want Torah's guidance. We want Torah's wisdom. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to be saddled with Torah all the time. You know, we don't want to have Torah with us at all times. Well, what are we saying? We want a, a no-strings-attached relationship with the Torah. And of course, like it's demanding, every married person knows that when you accept upon yourself the yoke of marriage, it's, you are giving up. You're, you are forfeiting certain freedoms. Everyone knows that, uh, but ultimately we know that it's better for us in the long run to lose those freedoms because of what we gain. Our relationship with the Torah—we were very, very happy with having a no strings attached relationship with the Torah as well. Because if we really, you know, <clears throat> embrace the Torah relationship on a permanent level, we're going to be forfeiting some of our freedoms as well, and that's very uncomfortable. You know we don't want to do it, but ultimately, in the long run, it's it's very beneficial for us. Give you guys another example. The, Go ahead. The,
1: who's the we in your explanation? There? We. You think well, us collectively? No, the Jewish people. Yeah. Where, where did you think you were? Well, I you know I think basically most Talmudic and Torah scholars are not in the we position. they you're probably talking about He's us talking collectively. talking about the populace, the people have been here.
0: I'm talking to everyone. What do you mean, everyone? Everyone. Well, everyone needs to. I think those to...
1: people study Torah. Any naturally, they just do it. They're not They're not having. They're not thinking that. You know, that's. You think it's a marriage to them? Hmm? You do believe that it would be. Con- well, I'm
0: saying this is. I, I think this is a. This is a remarkable insight, that is very surprising for everyone, for me included, for everyone in the room, and ever, all all Jews. When you discover that I think this heightens the kind of relationship that we're talking about. You know, I don't think we would have imagined, unless we were told so by the Torah, what is really going on when we study Torah. It doesn't seem to be very much different than when we study anything else. But we know that it's a very, it's, it's a very hazardous thing to say that we're comparing Torah study to the study of any other study, to biology, physics, to whatever it is, to medicine, to law. Right? This is the Almighty's Torah. And we have an opportunity to connect with it. But if we treat it like a regular textbook textbook or something that's like any of the other wisdoms in the world, we're essentially downgrading it from being something really special and really unique to something that's very mundane. And the Torah minces no words about what it thinks about such a relationship. Um, I, I, I want to take this maybe to a little bit more of a practical level. If the relationship that we have with the Torah is like the relationship that a husband has with a spouse. So what's the very first marriage in the Torah? Actual marriage? No. Adam and Eve. That's right. Adam and Eve. Yeah, they were married. And the Torah gives us a few very interesting statements about marriage when it talks about the first marriage. And it says it's not good for a person to be alone. God says, it's not good for, for a person to be alone. I'll make him a spouse. And then, and then Adam was so happy, he was so delighted, this time it's, it's a bone for my bone, it's flesh for my flesh, I'll call her Chava, I'll call her, She, you know, and he was so delighted, and the person should leave his father and mother and leave his wife and become one flesh. If the relationship we have with Torah Is similar relation we have with our spouses, perhaps we can kind of put that in to what the Torah's lessons is about spouses. Perhaps if we say it's not good for a man to be alone, I will make him a wife, perhaps that can be used as well to say it's not good for a person to be alone without Torah as much as without a wife. And therefore the Torah is parallel to a wife, to a woman, it's going to bring a person to a better place. It's not good for a person to be without Torah. What happens when a person doesn't have Torah? What was the world like before Torah emerged? A lot more well, idols, kids, kids. but you know, humans without instructions could be barbaric. It's, you know, we could really be barbaric people. Why? Because we are, in a certain realm of our existence, we're animals. We're animals that have the capacity to use our minds. But if we ignore our minds, we could really be like animals. And what happens when we're animals? We behave like animals. It's not good for a person to be without Torah. We'll see that the Torah sobers us up. It makes us humans. This Torah is what tells us to focus on the intellectual aspect and the part of us that's like the angels our soul, and not the part of us like like the animals, like our body. It's not good for a person without Torah, because a person without Torah is very likely to slide into a life of body centric, animalistic centric. And what happens to the world like that? What happens to the world when everyone acts like animals? You know, we're the only species that can survive like that. We're the only species that demands this certain this this this, this cooperation. We, we couldn't survive without... None of you guys... Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm an adventurer to say that no one here um, actually tailored their own clothing. If we didn't cooperate, we'd be toast. And we're the only ones that are not self-sustaining. Every animal on his own within, within an environment can survive. As humans, we need the masses, the critical masses. Otherwise, you know, what do you have? Imagine you have to make your own bread where would you start plus your own clothing
1: well, you'd have to plant your wheat and you have to but
0: but plant but, your but think fibers. about think about that life as yeah. humans we if we were animals if we favor animalistic life, it's not good right? we're not designed to be like that you,
1: know, you, you talk about the torah because we're all jewish but there were plenty of jews earlier in life that didn't study the torah well and, and there's them. plenty of non-jews as well and they, <clears throat> but and they survive not as animals
0: Human. I agree. I agree, um, but I also think that you could ask a question about non-Jews. Non-Jews don't have Torah, correct? No,
1: mm-hmm. oh, they have other things.
0: True, but I would say that a lot of Torah concepts have made their way into the world at large, and has yeah. created the yes. Tikkun Olam that we see today, where the fact that human life is valued—you know, abortion arguments aside—but human life but, is valued. And ISIS aside and ISIS aside that's right human you know, abortion and ISIS aside um, I never thought I would say that sentence right um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> true, yeah. but the fact that there is this idea of all men are created equal and no matter who you are no matter what class or what caste of society you were born into if you kill someone else you are going to be put uh, you're, 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 going to be, you're going to be have to face the law like that is an idea that is brand new and where did that come from it came from the Torah And it's a better world to live in. All men are created. Where's that idea from? It's from the Torah. And that's because the Torah has affected not only the Jewish people, but the whole world at large. And I think we can safely say it's not good for a person to be without Torah, just like it's not good. And by the way, what was the next sentence? How do we study Torah? A person should abandon his father and his mother and cleave to his wife and become one flesh. Think about that. If that is the way the Torah describes marriage of husband and wife, perhaps we could say that maybe this also parallels how we should relate to Torah. That a person should leave his father and mother it means you should leave your beginnings. Which what are your beginnings? Your beginnings are selfishness. The way you start off life is being very selfish. When it was just you and your parents, what was it? You were screaming in the middle of the night, feed me, I'm hungry. Who does that? Do you imagine going to your neighbor's door knocking in the middle of the night and saying, I'm hungry, can you feed me?
1: Well, maybe. Maybe you have nicer neighbors than I do.
0: I'm hungry enough. You could.
1: <laughs> no,
0: but like, we, why, how can we don't do that? Because we're not so selfish. Imagine waking up your neighbors, pounding on the window every night, feed
1: parents.
0: me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the were order and or a, the barrel of a shotgun, right? right. But my point is, is that that's what kids really are. And we have to abandon that. We have to cleave to the Torah and become one flesh with the Torah. We have to integrate the Torah's insights into our lives. We can't just let the Torah be an ideal, a principle, a theory, something that's really intellectual but doesn't really... We have to cleave to the Torah and become one flesh, become one with Torah. Think about that. It's possible, this is the idea of Das Torah, by the way, that it's possible for someone to integrate Torah into their lives to such a degree that when they think it's as if the you know you could ask them what the Torah thinks in a certain matter because the Torah has penetrated and permeated their minds that they become one with Torah so to speak and therefore what they say is influenced by Torah so if you want to know what Torah says on a given matter you ask someone like that there's a whole industry out there which I think has kind of gotten a little out of control but there's an idea that is already sourced. Thousands of years ago, where you would go to the Torah scholar for advice. Now, why? what about the Torah scholar makes them uh, capable and adept at giving advice? You know Torah, you don't know advice. The answer is because the Torah scholar is not just someone who knows a lot of Torah, but someone who has integrated Torah into their lives to such a degree that when you ask them, you're not really asking them. They're a proxy for asking the Torah. It's a way to kind of ask the Almighty almost. Because the Torah is the Almighty's mind. It's the way the Almighty thinks about the world. I know in my life, okay, I don't maybe do this as often as I should, but I know there were certain instances in my life where I was faced uh, with very vexing and very thorny and challenging questions, and I had to make a decision, and I asked someone who was one of the great Torah scholars that is around, and was, was so remarkable to me how he kind of knifed through the question. It's kind of like kind of like the way you would examine a question if you were a Torah style, which is very interesting. You know, you know sometimes when people ask you questions their questions have assumptions baked into them, correct? Mm-hmm. The biggest problem with an assumption is uh, with a question is that oftentimes it has an assumption when if the assumption is untrue the question doesn't have any order. Why I, I got the question recently why do religious Jews mistreat their women? Oh, whoa what a tough question. But that has, yeah. has an assumption, right? Yeah, yeah for, it does. It's nonsense. Of course, it's nonsense. And in fact, oh. it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the opposite. It's it's the one society that has for the you know, Jews for, for for forever have placed uh, uh, tremendous guards against any of that kind of behavior. But when someone kind of reads something in the news or something like that or gets a mistaken. Uh, conception about a certain issue and they ask you such a question and you're like, whoa, how do you answer such a question? The answer is that the assumption is nonsense. If you have an assumption that's untrue, but you pass it off as being true, then the question is unanswerable. Right? It's like the question that comes up in in law school when they ask people, Did you stop hitting your wife yet? Did you what did you stop hitting your wife yet?
1: You can't, it. You can't answer it, right? <laughs> And, and, you know, because
0: when you have an assumption baked into the question, the question is not legitimate unless the assumption is legitimate. Right? So when you ask a question to a Torah scholar, they're going to quickly determine what about your question are assumptions and analyze those assumptions as to whether or not they're true or not. And sometimes our assumptions are so deeply baked that we don't even realize that they're assumptions.
1: Yeah. How do you... How do you... How do you act- how do you become a Torah scholar? What are the, what are the um, attributes of a Torah scholar? I mean, you know a lot of Talmud, and you know a lot of. Are you a Torah star? Are you a Torah scholar?
0: Uh, it depends what kind of metric we're using to determine that.
1: I mean, what do you? I mean, what is your interpretation of that?
0: So that's a good question. Um, it's kind of a hard question to answer um, because there's different classifications, even classical classifications uh, of, of Torah scholars, right? For example, you have the idea of a Talmud Chachem. Are you ever really there a Talmud yes, Chachem?
1: Yes,
0: yes, yes. Let me write some notes here. You have a Talmud Chachem. What's a Talmud Chachem? Any divine Talmud Chachem? A what? A Talmud Chachem, which means some a... a a, a s- Right, right. Chachem is a wise person. A, a scholarly student, really—that's how you would tra- translate it. How do you? Tra- right, that's usually the word. A tamachachem is someone who's a Torah. Scholar. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you define that?
1: Yeah, that's Somebody my
0: that question. Torah for X of years, yeah, but people study, but you have people that study right? Torah and they don't know Torah. Right. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah it just depends on the person. Yeah. So that's a good
0: question. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, so there's a, there's a, there's one way that was defined. Uh, back uh, in 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 the Talmudic times, it defined a, ta- a Talmud scholar as someone who could discuss most parts of the Talmud with you at any time. So it means you meet someone and they say, "Okay, I'm I'm studying the 18th page of this particular volume of Talmud," and they'll say, "Okay, let's talk about it." Boom, off the spot. There are a lot of people like that that I've met. Uh, I met someone. I had someone who was once. He was an old, he was was in his 80s. A Torah style, like unbelievable. And I was studying a particular part of Talmud. And he hadn't studied that in 35 years at the time I was 22. So he hadn't studied. He he didn't see that thirteen years before I was born, which is just to think about that. And I'm talking to him and he's quoting me verbatim, words from the Talmud, words from Rashi. Word for word. That's a Torah style by any, any, any measurement, by, by, you know, by any measuring rod, by any yardstick. Uh, the, the Chazanish, Chazanish was one of the great Torah scholars of the past hundred years. Um, he gave a very interesting definition of a Torah scholar, and I like it a lot, of a Talmud A Torah scholar is someone, according to Chazanish, who can study 40 pages of Talmud in a single day. Okay, And can study one page of Talmud for 40 days. Which means, which I think you already, you already disqualified 99.9% of people by saying studying 40 pages of Talmud a single day. Because to study a single page of Talmud at a moderate level, for most people, will take them a few hours. To study forty in a single day, even assuming you are doing fifteen hours a day, you are doing two and a half of them an hour, mm-hmm. which is very difficult. Um, that being said, we have people in history that have studied hundreds of pages of Talmud uh, in a single day, but of course, these are renowned geniuses, and this is one of one out of a million, one out of ten million. Uh, but I know people that and can when study. When you say 40. study, you mean learn, yeah? Study to read it, to read it and study, understand it, and you know. And be able to Oh, yeah, to study 40 pages of Talmud in a single day, that's a very, very hard task. Um, I, I think there are some people that can do it, um, but that's that's obviously very broad. To study, I, the big question to me is which one of them is harder. But to study 40 days, only one page, the same guy. The thing. same guy who on that, if he could do 40 pages of Talmud, in one day, he could do 1,600 pages of Talmud, in 40 days. But he's, going to do one but he's going to do, right. he has the capacity of taking the Talmud and one page of Talmud and he could do 1,600 times going through the page of Talmud and equivalent ones but spend it all, learning all vertically. There's horizontal learning, very broad, and then there's vertical learning. And what we find is that when you dig deeper, deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, you find that there's deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper to go. I once heard a story of a, um, a Torah scholar who was having a conversation. I mean, if you study, study some Talmud, you see that some Talmuds are a little bit more what we would call dry. You know, it's eh, not as enticing, it's not as exciting, it's not as, you know, dramatic uh, discussion. It's a little bit more dry. But how can we say that about a Torah? Torah is dry, God forbid, Right. So he heard someone saying about a certain page of Talmud, it's a little bit dry. So he said, Torah is not dry, and he took that page of Talmud and studied it so vertically that he was able to write two massive essays on that particular page of Talmud. But The point is is that what this definition of a Torah scholar is, is, is getting at is that there's really a lot that goes into being a Torah scholar. It's being able to um, gobble up masses and masses and masses of information. We just had last week, I mentioned it, we had the death of one of the great Torah scholars in, of our times, Rabbi R. Shmuel i tell you, I sat by his lectures and he loses you, you know, 50 seconds in, 45 seconds in, you're gone. He's speaking so fast. You know when you take a... If you take a podcast, and I encourage everyone to add my podcast on iTunes. and do this as an experiment. Take the podcast on iTunes. What is right? that? A podcast. All my oh, classes podcast? are available on podcast <clears throat> on iTunes. Take your iPhone, go to podcast app, and search Wolby and select, select subscribe. Take any class, and then you have the option to play it at one speed, which is the same speed that it was delivered, or two times speed or 1.5. Right? Put it at 2% two, 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 two speed because oh. then it's the maximum. That's what it sounded like. But did you learn anything? Well, it's very hard to learn because because, because it's, well, it, so
1: because,
0: because that particular scholar is someone that is working with a jet engine mm-hmm. and you're driving your little Chevy, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard, you know. Um, that's why we have him write stuff down <laughs> because we can work through it piece by piece. But, yeah, I'm saying everyone has to study at their own pace.
1: Here's my question. When you're young, you go to your parents for guidance. Maybe when you get a little older, you maybe you'll go to your rabbi, okay? Mm-hmm. Or maybe you'll go to your psychologist, whoever that might be. How does us collectively go get to go to a Torah scholar? How do we know who a Torah? Who's the Torah scholar? We'll never basically. I don't think any of us have ever talked to a Torah scholar, have we? Well, well I think you have to know enough lot before you go there. That's what I'm. Yeah. So how do we get there? First, you have to learn it, then you can get there. Okay, We'll never have contact with a Torah. I don't to answer your question. We'll never have contact. I don't think us collectively will ever have contact with a Torah.
0: Yeah, well, you may not be able As to have you contact, tourist contact tourist. With, with the greatest Torah, but Torah scholars, I'm saying there's going to be a tremendous band of Torah scholars. You have a tremendous spectrum of mm. Torah scholars. And
1: that should probably, if you go to yeshivas, where you? No, are.
0: I'm saying anywhere. It means we have... What
1: well, uh, rabbis have been through yeshivas.
0: That's right. So, so someone study. someone like my okay, brother they, who studied a lot, they, uh, you know, he's a Torah scholar. He's not a Torah scholar on, you know, on kind of a Mount Rushmore scale. No. Um, but he's a Torah scholar. Okay.
1: But you studied. My brother. So are you. So. so are you. That's
0: right. You're a Torah scholar. That's yeah. right. I'm, I'm saying I don't, I don't put myself in the same category as, mm-hmm. as you know, but I would agree, you know, um, as weird as that sounds coming out of my mouth. But um, it's true. It's true that I spent many, many, many hours and many years of my life studying Torah. And that changes the way you think. It changes the way you analyze things. It's, you're able to kind of strip away at, you know, you're able to strip away at the parts of, uh, of, of your analysis that are extraneous, you know. I, I love getting questions. No, you because whenever I get questions, I get to dice up a question. Because a lot of times when you ask a question, people are like, "Oh, this, oh, I'm going to stump the rabbi, right?" When asking the question, you want to know the answer. The problem is, is that you don't realize that your question has so many assumptions baked into it. And if we kind of strip them out one by one, mm-hmm. right, we'll see that it's not—it's a non-existent question. And I like doing that because it's—you it, know—it's—it's it's kind of Talmudic analysis that we provide that you know, the, or that we use over, um, you know, just in common day-to-day life. But I think that the lesson that I want to take uh, from this particular um, reason why we study Torah, we said it's a mitzvah to study Torah. That's the first reason why we study Torah. Uh, And the thing I want to take away from it is that, yes, it's a mitzvah, but the Torah tells us something very interesting about this mitzvah, that it is intimate and it's deep and it's profound. And that's why the Torah itself does not mention it, and this kind of changes our perspective about what, what Torah really is. You know, We think of Torah as knowledge, as wisdom, as study. And you know what? If it was just that, you could put it on the same pedestal as philosophy and Science. architecture yeah, yeah. and uh, mathematics. And that would be a gross disservice or disservice to Torah. Because yes, Torah is a wisdom. But if we relegate it to being merely a wisdom, we are disavowing God's connection to to Torah. If the Torah is what it portends to be, to be God's mind, it is much more than a mere wisdom. It's God's wisdom. And God's wisdom is not limited to any sort of narrow definition. And the relationship that we have to have is like the relation we have with our spouses. It's very deep, it's very intimate. Uh, it's very personal. It's very personal. You know the the the, the the Talmud says that there's three things that a Torah scholar is allowed to lie about. Lie about? Yes. There are three things about that. A Torah scholar is allowed to lie about.
1: Allowed to, lie. Allowed to lie about. Yes.
0: Okay. <laughs> um, so one of the things is that is is that a Torah scholar is allowed to lie about the relationship they have with their spouses. Okay. It's not on no one's business. Someone no asks question, mm-hmm. you lie to them next thing it says is about your scholarship. Most people you the library scholarship. The answer is if your scholarship is so deeply perfect, if you're a Torah scholar, it's, a d- it's, it's just, it's the same thing. It's deep, it's personal. You don't want to talk about that publicly.
1: And a scholar have a certain sense of humility about himself anyway. Yeah, but
0: even if you have humility, you shouldn't be lying about something.
1: Hmm.
0: Are you allowed to say, but is humility a distruth? No. I don't know if that's even a word. Is it an untruth? No. No. It's not. It means, can Moshe be the most humble of all men, yet Moshe knew that he was the leader of the people, he knew he was a prophet, right? If you asked Moshe, are you a prophet, what would he say? Mm -hmm. Of course, I'm a prophet. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm better than you because I'm a prophet. Mm -hmm. So humility is not... Ignoring reality, humility is understanding reality, but not taking that for yourself, so to speak, according yourself higher value compared to someone else because of your status. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, so so that's interesting. So the, the relationship we have with Torah is you, what's your different. I don't remember. I'm, well, okay. if, I'm, I'm trying to remember what it was. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> He could hey, uh, lie uh, and tell you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He's going to make a note about it here. Yeah, I'll,
0: I'll send that out, guys. I forgot about that. Um, Good for you, David. I'm pretty hey, sure this shows you were
1: paying attention.
0: Or? Yes, yeah, yeah. I was I hoping, I hoping someone would ignore that, but it's okay. <laughs> um if you could
1: make it up, there would be a third lie. <laughs> Robert can make up the third lie, that's
0: all. Um, and. Know.
1: To about the three lies. Yeah, that's a- and
0: lastly, it's also important for us to realize we cannot be without Torah. A human without Torah could be a disaster. right? The restrictions rise. And we have a lot of questions. I, got, I get this question a lot. Does God really care if I eat our cheeseburger? Really? The God of the, the, God of the cosmos and the creator of heaven and earth, this is what matters to him? Right? It's a good question. But even if we assume... That all the mitzvahs are arbitrary. Let's assume that you're right. It's arbitrary. There's no nothing really wrong, which I don't, I don't agree to. But let's assume that for a second. Take the assumption: they're all arbitrary. Still, if the mitzvahs, if the Torah, are there to make us grounded, if it's not good for us to be without rules, if without Torah we're like animals, we have rules. Even if the rules are arbitrary, they ground us and make us humans. Right. We're not animals because we have rules, and the mere kind of exercise of saying "I'm not doing this because um, I have some sort of code that I live by," even if that code is not divine, so to speak, even if it's, it's, it's arbitrary, people who live by a code are people that are grounded, and even you'll see this, you see this—you see the people, you know, people that are grounded by any code. And someone asks a question: "Hey." Uh, people that are Buddhists, you know, they have more productive lives and they're happier. Does that mean that Buddhism is true? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. It means that living by a certain set of standards, certain rules, certain principles is greatly beneficial for you. And indeed, if Torah was arbitrary, it would still be beneficial for you. Because if you don't have Torah, you will be, it's not good for a person to be without Torah, you could be an animal.
1: That's about, very disastrous.
0: So it happens to be. It's just wonderful that we, the Torah is true as well. Go ahead.
1: What about the fact that two years ago, I never even knew what Torah was?
0: So what it, about that?
1: So how did I survive and function?
0: Well, the hope is that your parents gave you good lessons mm-hmm. and that you were taught Torah even though you didn't know you were learning Torah. Okay. You know? If the Torah taught you, be respectful to your elders. Your parents like, ever told you that?
1: It's like being taught morality.
0: Be respectful of your elders. You heard no, that from your parents. A lot of you heard that from your parents. You heard Torah. They didn't say the Torah says be respectful to elders. It said be respectful to elders. It seems like the more don't. I do study Torah, the more I realize that Torah has infiltrated the yeah. world. In other oh yeah. Oh yeah. And oh, yeah.
1: Philosophies, yeah, and there are a lot of people that are not Jewish that
0: do a lot of mitzvahs and do a yeah. lot of. Yeah, that's true. Mm hmm. Follow the ten commandments. Yeah. yeah, and. and yeah, and that's a new thing, by the way. We think of we we're looking at it post facto. It's a very new thing. The the extreme concern that we have with human life don't thou shalt not murder that that now has is universal. It's ubiquitous, except jihadists. Well, okay. And
1: well, that's because we're of all the Jews. <laughs>
0: But 2,000 years ago, it was not true. 2,000 years ago, the Romans would have these exhibitions where they'd take 10,000 petty criminals and just slaughter them. And everyone would watch. Could you imagine doing that?
1: And the only way that people wouldn't gag
0: over all that blood is they would have little perfumes being sprayed. so They shouldn't gag. Could you imagine that happening today? It should never happen today because our society has become less animalistic, thanks to the Torah. And there's other religions as well. And my monotheism tells us, by the way, that other religions, their goal as well is to be sister religions to Judaism to help us teach the world about God, about monotheism, about morality. And ultimately, the idea of Mashiach is to tinker with that. What's the, what, what's the idea? The idea is, is that it's very easy, it's, or it's a lot easier to take someone who believes in the basic construct of monotheism and to tweak it and correct it to make it in line with what the Torah says. But to take someone who is polytheistic, right, or pagan, and to teach them about monotheism, that that's a totally different paradigm. So the idea of Mashiach is to teach the entire world about the specific perspective about God. So um, the Muslims believe in the same God we believe in. The only problem with that is they believe that, that Muhammad was some sort of prophet, and that the Quran has any value. But the idea of God that they have is in line with ours. All you got to do is amend it a little bit. Slight emendation, okay. you're good to go. Okay. So Mashiach's job is a lot easier. That's, that's what Maimonides says. So I, I agree, the Torah has penetrated. Right. The Torah's ideals have, not, well, not universally, right, and not perfectly, right. but very broadly, and almost perfectly. And that's a testament to the success that mankind has had. In completing Tikkun Olam to whatever degree we have, mm-hmm.
1: and being the light of which is exactly that's right. What that's, what it, that's
0: what it means. It means that Except we influence. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so that's the first. First reason why we study Torah. I think if we just had this as a reason why we study Torah, I think it would be enough for us. You know, there's enough material mm-hmm. in this analysis as to why we study Torah to really make us understand. You know the value that we ha- have to accord to Torah study. The importance and why it was historically and still is today so central to Jewish living. You know, this is this is what it's, it's a mitzvah, but it's it's a crucial mitzvah, and it's a mitzvah that affects us in every aspect of our lives. I want to get a little bit more granular. Okay, so it's a mitzvah, but is it just like any other mitzvah, or not? So someone mentioned previously that if you don't have Torah, what else won't you have? What else will you?
1: Have?
0: Will you not have? It's true. You wouldn't have the rest of the mitzvahs. So Torah study onto its own is very valuable because it connects you with God, it's this deep relationship, and it makes us human. But what about the rest of the mitzvahs? The Torah includes instructions for how to live as a Jew. If you don't have the rest of the mitzvahs, if you don't have the Torah, you won't have the rest of the mitzvahs either. For example... We have a. Uh, the Talmud in the book of Kidushin talks about what is more important, to do mitzvahs or to study Torah. This is a very interesting question. And it's, it, the resolution of the question is equally interesting. It's a whole debate amongst the scholars. What's greater, to study Torah or to do mitzvahs? And I think if we would bring this to the floor, I think there would be probably proponents on either side.
1: <laughs> Yeah, there are, there are yeah, no, there so are no mitzvahs to do. We well, wouldn't so, know him, but the mitzvahs were. Where does that question come
0: from? Well, <clears throat> the, the question is a... Uh, Can you do
1: mitzvahs without the Torah? Is that basic?
0: No, the question was, it's, it's, and, and it's I'm it saying, and it, the Talmud was deliberately brief about this question because all it says, that the rabbis were sitting in a room, and this question arised, what is greater, Torah study? We're doing mitzvahs actions, and they were talking about it, and they agreed that actions are more important.
1: So
0: doing mitzvahs is more important. Comes along with Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Akiva says studying is greater because studying brings to action. Right, and then ultimately everyone said, okay, we agree with Rabbi Akiva. His argument is sound. And, Torah bring, right, and they all agreed to say that Torah study. Is greater. Now, the Talmud gives you a lot of backstory here to this insight. They're trying to give you some sort of insight. What the Talmud could have chosen to do is to say, Talmud study is greater, or Talmud means to study, right? The word Talmud itself means to study. Torah study is greater than doing mitzvahs because Torah brings you to mitzvahs. That's what it could have said. Instead, it gives you a backstory. The rabbis were studying, that the a question, what's greater? Torah study, right? Talmud or Misa or action and everyone said action and then comes over Kiva, and he says Torah is greater study Torah is greater because it brings you to action and everyone changes their mind so there's a lot there to unpack but I I think what it is highlighting is the fact that when you have Torah study you actually have everything else so maybe on a pound for pound basis so to speak, maybe there is an argument to be made that doing a mitzvah is transformative when you do a mitzvah what does it mean? means that your body is involved in spiritual pursuits. The end goal of Judaism is to create harmony with our body and soul by making our body spiritual. And I said a, I said a very powerful statement. But the goal of Torah is our body, not our soul. Our soul does not need Torah. Our soul starts off with Torah to begin, to begin with. The problem is that we have a body that's in opposition to that. So the goal of the Torah is, about, is, the, is the body. And what addresses the body? Mitzvahs. Sorry about that. Mitzvahs address the body. Torah addresses the mind. Torah is kind of the mind. Is that part of the body? Is a part of the soul? It's kind of closer to the soul, so, much, uh, so to speak. It's a little bit more forth, you know, forward thinking. It's a little bit more connected to our spiritual sense. So there's a good argument to be made, and some of the rabbis made this argument, that mitzvahs are more important because mitzvahs actually affect change to our way of life much more than just studying. And the rabbis seem to agree to that. And comes over to you and says, yes, you're right. Maybe a mitzvah is more valuable in how it changes someone. But look at the big picture. One person studies, one person does a mitzvah. The mitzvah changes in kind of the narrow sense the mitzvah changes someone right? more than the Torah study does. But big picture, what happens when someone studies Torah? Torah is going to bring us to mitzvahs in a much more expansive way than mitzvahs onto their own. Now, a mitzvah brings about another mitzvah. Right? It's not like a mitzvah is a one and done. It's not like a mitzvah is a three and out, to give a football sense, right? A mitzvah does kind of beget other mitzvahs. But Talmud itself brings us everywhere. The Talmud changes our perspective, our uh, our values that makes a whole torrent of mitzvahs result from the Talmud study. And indeed, if we did not study Torah, we would have a really hard time knowing what to do. Mm -hmm. You know, just think of it in the simplest sense, you know. We look at the world and at our mission as being a little bit confusing, Mm -hmm. you know there's so much and every time every week you come here you're like oh, so much Torah like, it's kind of hard to piece it all together to make some uniform yeah, unified theory as to what Torah and mitzvah is all about what's Judaism all about like, that's a good question and it's a very hard thing to answer and that's why the Torah is essentially working with the same model the Torah is like okay it's a complicated world there, there's a lot of stuff going on there's, you know, there's Judaism there's Torah there's mitzvah there's Israel there's Shabbos there's circus. there's all the holidays, there's all the mitzvahs that are related only in Israel, there's all the personal mitzvah. a lot of stuff going on over here. And how do you kind of piece it all together? And the truth is, we have a very detailed manual. Because we're dealing with a detailed world, we have a detailed manual. And if you look at the way the Torah and the mitzvahs are designed, they're exact parallels to the way the world and, and us humans are designed. For instance, we're told, that we have 248 limbs, corresponding to 248 mitzvahs. Positive is that's right. So what does that mean? It means that the Torah was tailor-made to change us, to fix us. Tailor-made, it's perfect. But if you never studied the Torah, if you never studied the mitzvahs, if you never read the manual, how are you possibly going to navigate this world? What are you going to do? can't. Imagine if I told you, hey, you, know, you, you get a new toaster. You're all excited. You rip off the box from Amazon, right? Finally, you'll have a toaster that's big enough to fit your bagels in, right? And then there's a big red sign, caution. A, uh, improper use of this device may result in serious injury or death. What do you do? You plug it in and you say, I'll figure it out, right? No. But it comes, you know, maybe that's not what you should do, right? But it comes with a manual.
1: You look at the instructions, right? Yeah,
0: I remember see. I was, um, in the summer I was home alone. I'll say this story quickly because I think I have to leave. Um, I was home alone and something was wrong with my oven and it, I couldn't turn the ringer off. So all day and all night it was the ringer was on <laughs> and I was going mad. Oh, no. And then I, I'm like, okay, I went to the, whole, the module that had it I unscrewed it and I pull it out and I see a thousand wires. And I'm like, I don't care, I'm just cutting the wires. I can't stand this noise. And then I'm like, mm, maybe that's not a good idea because a lot of people die doing that. <laughs> you know? So I actually brought in someone to do that for me. But you know, you don't want to tamper with electricity before knowing what it is that you need to do. And if we have a very co- and the more complicated the you entity just unplugged it. I don't know what to do. It was like, it's built in. I had no idea. Yeah. You have no manual the, your oven, Exactly. But if I did, I would probably read it. Yeah. But the more complex the entity, the, the, the um, appliances, the bigger the manuals, probably the more important it is to read. The Torah is the manual for the world. There's a lot of laws, a lot of details, and the Torah is how we read the instructions. And if we don't have the Torah, we won't know the, the intric- intricacies of the laws, the, co- the, the complex laws of Shabbat. How important is that for, for, for living a, Jew, a Jewish life and for achieving Tukor Alam? How do we do it without Torah? We can't. So first reason why we study Torah is a mitzvah. It's the most important mitzvah. It's a dramatic mitzvah. It's a relationship. It's, it's, it's everything. And then second thing is we, we got all the instructions. And indeed, I have at least 20 more reasons why we study Torah. We'll break those down next week. Thank you guys so much. Lots of fun. And I look forward to seeing you all. Thank and. you.
1: Thank you.